0: Welcome everybody back to the Oklahoma drill podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I got my co-host Matt here with me. We are here to review the week one loss from the New York jets to the Baltimore Ravens, a 24 to nine affair that might've been a little closer than the final score indicates as well as look ahead to week two's matchup in Cleveland against the Browns. Matt, I know just like I am that you are reeling from this loss. But maybe not in a complete and total disaster. Tear everything down. It's week one, and the season is over. Kind of way. There were some positives to take from this. We will get to those eventually. But overall, I just want to get what was your main takeaways from the Ravens game, and where would you want to start focusing on uh, what happened?
1: Well, yeah, uh, it was a little bit of a emotional roller coaster watching that game. Uh, it it at, at first glance. If you're just looking at the wins and losses, which is really all that matters in the end, then yes, they have not improved at all. They're still lost. Uh, But at the same time, I can look at this team and see light and day differences from last year. Uh, They did enough in my eye, in my point of view, to have either made this a very close game, tie game, or even win the game. They put themselves in a position To score a lot more than they did uh but a lot of things went wrong they really just killed themselves they shot themselves in the foot constantly whether it was drops uh fumbles uh falling down and causing an interception uh misreads by flacco uh, flacco's inability uh or just the Lafleur's just inability to really adapt. There's so many factors, and we'll we'll go into a few of those more in depth. Uh, but it all that put together in, in in addition to an offensive line that wasn't real doing at its best that yesterday by any stretch of the imagination, especially our Fant and and Lakin, who were supposed to be kind of our stalwarts uh, along this offensive line going into this year. So. Uh, there's a lot of things that were troublesome, but at the same time, uh, everything that went wrong, I feel like can be fixed.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't think that there were any glaring disasters from this game. I do think there was some positives to take from uh, specifically the defense, like you said, and I think offensively, where I think that is obviously the biggest struggle of the team on Sunday was the offense. I don't think that this was a situation of, We don't have the horses in the stable or or not enough talent. I don't think this was a situation where, you know, the Jets just got completely and totally outmatched or outschemed. I really think they kind of outsmarted themselves and really beat themselves. And I think that things on the offense can improve with some time and some adjustments and, and some different focuses because overall they had opportunities. This game was very close through most of the first half. I think it was 10-3 at halftime. It was tied through most of the first quarter. I think the Ravens got up by a field goal for a short period of time. But this was a very close game for for a good majority of the start of it. And it just took until towards the end of the game, when the defense was gassed from being on the field so much, that they weren't able to keep pace. Eventually, Lamar, as we said last week when we were previewing, Lamar is going to get his. And there was a couple of times when he got his and made some absolutely incredible throws they were able to score points, but this game was not, like I said, at the start, it was not as far uh, as, as far off as the score may indicate. And there was a lot to take away. Um, I'm looking most ahead, starting on where we can improve. Cause we'll end on where we can, the positives to really take away. And that'll transition us to the Browns game, but where we can improve, I'm looking at the offense. And the first thing I want to talk about as understandably for everybody is the offensive line. This was a, a sad performance by the offensive line. Uh, And I'm going to understand specifically for George Fant that this has been a heck of a lot of flip-flopping for him between left tackle and right tackle and not knowing where he's going to play. And the second he thinks he's established and going to be in one spot, something else happens and they move him back over to the other side. It's got to be a lot. And clearly that affected him uh, in week one. He didn't look comfortable at all, whether it was the run game or the pass game. It was a really, really bad performance from him. But where we need to focus, Matt, is Lakin Tomlinson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because for how much money Lakin Tomlinson is making, for how much he got signed for, for the prestige that he was supposedly bringing, this was unacceptable of a performance. There's no other way for me to say it. This was flat-out unacceptable from Lakin and Tomlinson. And I'm sure Tomlinson would agree. I don't think we're saying anything that, that would be controversial or anything else. But whether it was the run game or the pass game, his anchor was was non-existent. And people were getting into his chest with way too much ease, and the second they did, he had no ability to reset and counter and kind of p- position himself in a way to to fight off any of those defensive linemen trying to go through him. Justin Mattabukay on uh, um, the Ravens' defensive line just had his way with Tomlinson, and if this offense wants to improve, it's got to start up front, and it's got to start with their their highest-paid player.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Absolutely, that that
1: really nails it down uh, from the get go. On the first drive, Lakin was on skates constantly. Uh, I counted at least two or three times uh, where he was just pushed right back in the Flacco's lap, uh, and that kind of set the tone for the rest of the day, uh, where the offensive line uh, was just giving up way too much space and way too much to the defense. Uh, and not a lot of guys that you would think, uh, like you said, it'd be gay, uh, Pierce, uh, K- uh, K- K- uh, uh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, was kind, Campbell. Of a, Campbell, was uh, kind of uh, taken out by, uh, by Max Mitchell a couple times, which I was actually pretty much encouraged by uh, that. Max did pretty w- the, pretty much the, the best out of the entire group on that offensive line. Uh, so there is that there, there is a little bit of a silver lining, but yeah, Lakin not really living up to his contract and the hype, uh, was a real big letdown, but at the same time, I think maybe fan, uh, not really getting a lot of time next to him, uh, maybe put him in a position where he wasn't comfortable. I don't know, uh, I don't know. I I hope that everything gets, gets fixed because yeah, there's a lot of things I saw in his game that I was not impressed with. I saw his punch, not landing uh, a slow punch. That was just very predictable to defensive linemen. They were able to just sidestep it very easily and get right in his pads. Like you said before, Uh, everything about him looked pretty mediocre. Uh, I, I, I guarantee that like you said, also that he is going to hold himself accountable more than any of us can. Uh, I think that they can only improve because they are pretty much rock bottom. Um, So I, I am encouraged by that alone is that they can't be worse.
0: So if you go from there, then sky's the limit. Yeah, that's, that's really the thing. They couldn't really be much worse. Uh, and credit to Max Mitchell, because I think as a rookie who didn't spend most of the summer preparing to start, who really kind of got thrown into the starting lineup with a handful of days ahead of the game, you know, and then got a lot of fire thrown on him for being asked about the Ravens front and Calais Campbell in particular and saying, you know, They're good. We respect them, but they're just, you know, other guys in the league. We're good, too, and we're going to we're going to hold our own. And I thought he did hold his own. Uh, This wasn't an an absolutely amazing, incredible, you know, blow the doors off performance where, you know, Mitchell is already one of the best tackles in the league or anything close to that. But given the circumstances, given where we expected him to be in his development, I was very, very encouraged with what I saw from Max Mitchell. I think there's room to grow Uh, with this offensive line in particular past. Continuity and everything else, because continuity doesn't matter a lick for just getting beat one on one. And I think that's where I can specifically point to Fant and Tomlinson and say, I didn't think communication was the problem. I think they were just losing. And that's not any amount of communication is going to fix that. That's just going to be technique, practice, and effort uh, to improve that more. One thing I want to turn to, Matt, this is something I've seen thrown around on Twitter, and I've really had an averse argument to it. Uh, but I've been waiting for the pod to kind of go in depth. I want to talk about the run game mm-hmm. because I've seen a handful of people say that the Jets got too away from the run game early in the game and that they should have stayed more committed and they were running the ball well. And, and I see, keep seeing the thing of, oh, they were they were at. I think it was like six yards to carry in the first half. And then they they stopped running the ball. That is so misleading. That is so absolutely misleading. I have a list of the first give or take 10 runs that the Jets called in this game throughout pretty much most of the first half. And I'm going to read them off to you, Matt. You tell me if this looks sounds like a consistent or effective rushing attack to you outside of a few plays. Mm-hmm. First play of the game is a 19-yard run by Michael Carter at the left edge. Good run play. No arguments there. Second run is a five-yard run by Michael Carter later in the drive. Drive eventually stalls. Next drive happens. Brees Hall gets in the backfield. His first carry goes for negative two. So you've had a run of 19, a run of five, and a run of negative two. I'm going to rattle off the next handful of runs here. One yard by Michael Carter. Zero yards by Michael Carter. One yard by Michael Carter pushed back 10 yards for a holding call. Four yards by Brees Hall. Zero yards by Brees Hall. Now we're at close to three minutes in the end of the half. The Jets are making one last push where I think they were able to get a field goal before the end of half and make it a 10-3 game. You get a 14-yard run by Brees Hall. You get a 5-yard run by Michael Carter. You get a 22-yard run by Michael Carter. That doesn't seem consistent to me. That's a 19-yard gain to open the game. And then your biggest gain since then is a 22-yard gain almost at the end of the first half. And I see a lot of negative 2 and a 1 and a 0 and not a lot going on there. I don't think the problem was that the Jets got away from the run game. I think the problem was that the Jets tried to stay too committed to the run game early in drives. And when you have runs, a lot of these runs were the first on first and 10 trying to set up a drive. When you have a first and 10 and you run for negative two, and now you're in second and 12, you're behind the sticks. You're playing into the Ravens' hands. You're playing into you know their opportunity to either blitz or fake a blitz or, or set up their coverage where they know you're going to be trying to, to throw further down the field. And I'm going to be honest, Matt we'll get into Joe Flacco next because I know that's where a lot of the blame has been going. The most blame for this loss for me outside of the offensive line goes on Michael floor because the stubbornness, in my opinion, to continue to try and start drives with the run game, the very little to no persistence or or willingness to get their playmakers the ball in space and scheme up some touches for them and take advantage of what the Ravens were doing. The Ravens were playing a lot of zone, which I don't think was mainly to be expected. They played man later in the game and on some third downs, but to open things up, it was mainly zone and their corners were backing off. They were giving the Jets a lot of space underneath and we didn't see really any short throws, any quick in cuts, any tunnel screens like we talked about last week that I was big on. I really wanted to see some more you know, creativity for Michael floor. And instead of just trying to out bully the Ravens, which is such a tough thing to do. I really wanted to see them try and outspeed the Ravens with all this talent and explosiveness they've added onto this offense. And it just wasn't there. And I think it led to them getting behind the sticks. Uh, they were, I think, zero for eight on their first eight, third downs. Most of those were third and seven or longer. And it's hard to convert third and longs in the NFL consistently. So I just, I want people to, to look at reality. And that's one thing that we always talk about on this show is we're always going to try and keep it real and, and be, you know, as straight up with things as they are. When people deserve to be called out, we'll do it. And when people deserve to be defended, they'll do it. Right now, I, I think it's a matter of adjusting and shifting the blame. There could have been a lot more done by Michael Floor for this offense outside of just let's try and run the ball and establish the run game and be the tougher team and come out in these 12 and 13 personnel sets. And then we'll call our deep shots off play action off of it. See what's going on in front of you. See the flow of the game. Adjust as the game is going on and start trying to get these guys the ball in space. There was way too many opportunities for some quick outs to Moore or Berrios or Wilson to, to let them catch the ball in the flat and run that I really think would have helped out this offense immensely.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, this isn't the ground and pound days. Uh, so out bullying just it, it sounds like a, like a Rex Ryan strategy rather than yep. a, a, a strategy that Mike LaFleur would, would want to use. Um, yeah, it didn't make sense then. It doesn't make sense now. Uh, there was a lot of talk about Salah not going for the fourth and one after Garrett Wilson fought to get us within inches of the first down. Um and I think Sala went on to say if things were flowing well, uh he would have gone for it. He probably would have sided with his his uh game manager and coach uh who also wanted to go for it. Uh and would have d- would have done it if he thought that this offense was running at a consistent level. Uh and that they also have to look at the context of the, the game at that point. Uh they're on their own 35-yard line. Uh and that it was at that point a 10-3 game, so any giving up any points at that point sounds like a huge risk, especially with Tucker on the other on the other side. <clears throat> so, yeah, it, the the point that it was not consistent and not flowing well is an understatement. Uh, and yeah, it, the only way that they're really going to get this offense flowing to its maximum level is to really utilize what it does best. Like you said, their speed, their twitchiness, their ability to get open, their ability to make people miss in space. Do this, and you got to really accentuate these facts uh, of of this offense. This is what they do. This is what, they, what we knew that they could do going into this season. To so go, why away we from brought America. in the guys we brought in, exactly. And it's kind of why we brought Lafleur in, also. To be honest, uh, his ability to kind of use guys like these like the guys that we have right now in the way that they should be used um so yeah it's kind of you know square peg round hole kind of thing going on here uh and we can only hope that it really improves for the browns game it would not hope it needs to improve
0: yeah no it absolutely has to it's not there's no if ands or buts about it and this is one thing that we've talked about you know at length uh, on this show for months and months beforehand is the stubbornness of this coaching staff and that they have their schemes they are you know they believe in what they believe in and they're going to do what they do regardless of who they're playing cuz they think they have the scheme and the talent to to make it work and, and i just think that that doesn't always work in the modern nfl i think you have to you have to stay true to who you are and you have to have an identity i've talked about that before as well but you have to be able to adjust on the fly and be multiple in what your identity is. And so for the Jets in particular, we hope that they can have the ability to be that tough ground and pound team and play bully ball and use their run game and their running backs to their advantage. The offensive line didn't seem to be able to do that on that day. So rather than try and adjust and and get the ball into these guys in space, we saw one flare screen to Michael Carter and it picked up a first down. We saw very little outside of that. There was a screen to uh, Brees Hall later in the game. I think it was on a second and long. And Connor McGovern got no drive on the defensive tackle and Brees Hall had nowhere to go. Outside of that, we didn't really see much. We we didn't really see much creativity. We didn't see any jet sweeps. We didn't see any of the LaFleur the gadget or trick plays. And I know it's week one. You don't want to be opening up your whole playbook, but there's so much more in this Jets offense and, and in Michael LaFleur's bag that we know that he has that we just didn't see. And I really feel like that was it's a it's a failure of coaching. I really don't know how other any other way to say it other than that. It was just a failure of coaching. When you have all this talent that you amassed, you have all this speed, you have all this playmaking ability. Yes. You want them to win down the field. Absolutely. That's something, you know, you're always going to look for is to get explosives and get big plays. And with Flacco and his arm strength, you know, that he'd be able to get them the ball, but the offensive line wasn't blocking well enough to for, to let those plays develop. And we didn't see enough of an adjustment to, okay, Let's get some easy completions. Let's get the ball out of our hands quick. Let's try and and try and generate some yards on first down and get ahead of the sticks. It was just we'll get ahead of the sticks with the run game. And if that doesn't work, then we'll just try and throw deep. I didn't like that approach. And I really think it could have had things go differently in this game if things were done differently. Let's get to the elephant in the room. And that's Joe Flacco. Mm hmm because I think there's a lot of fans that are calling for Flacco's head saying he was terrible and, and this loss is on him and, and he was, a, you know, a statue in the pocket and, and there's so much that he could have done differently. Give us and, and this is Yeah, and give us Strebler. I've seen give us Mike White. And, and I'm going to be honest, guys. What do you think Mike White would have done differently? Yeah. Because, because <laughs> I have no answer for that. I, I'm sorry. I have absolutely no answer for that whatsoever. The Jets offensive line was getting bullied. The interior of the pocket specifically was getting abused, took away any lanes to step up. Obviously Flacco is not fleet of foot and Mike White isn't either. Is Mike White more fleet of foot than Flacco? Yeah, but that's a really low bar. <laughs> you know we're not we're not talking about much there. Both of them are going to be considered pocket quarterbacks that really need to have a, a some amount of clean Pocket in front of them to be effective. I know Mike White can make throws under pressure. We've seen it in Cincinnati. We saw it again at the start of the uh, Colts game before he got hurt. That's not my concern. But when you're throwing against pressure every single snap, you know, that's it's going to be different regardless of who you are at quarterback. And I didn't see a ton out of Mike White in the preseason to sit there and go, He looks incredible. He looks fantastic. He's getting the ball out of his hands so quick and so decisive that 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 would have been the difference. This is where the defending of Flacco comes in and and the, the shifting of blame to Michael Floor. Flacco can't get the ball out of his hands any faster. If one, no one's open, and two, all the routes are downfield later developing. If no one's ready for the ball, get the ball out faster doesn't do anything for him. I think I saw a stat that said Flacco had the 18th highest average time to throw. Uh, through starting quarterbacks last week, which I'm sure fans are, would probably be shocked at and thought it was a lot worse than that. But 18th is give or take middle of the road. I think a lot of that had more to do with the scheme and the play calling than Flacco himself. There were a couple opportunities I saw in, in the times that I've rewatched where could have could Flacco have trusted his receivers and tried to, to fit some balls in some early windows and make some plays? Yeah. But I also think there was plenty of times when he's getting ready to go through his reads and he decides not to make a risky throw. And he's trying to get to the check down that's open. And by the time that happens, he's got a defender in his lap and it's just, I really feel <laughs> like this was, yeah, like this was a letdown from the offensive line. There was plenty of drops as well. We saw, we had Carter drop an open touchdown. Corey Davis dropped a ball early in the game, which credit to Corey Davis. I think he had a huge bounce back after that and oh, really, yeah. and really settled in was probably the best receiver on the day. But there was this was not just Flacco. And and I really don't think that replacing Flacco with Mike White or Strebler or anybody else. How about even Zach? I I don't think. Yeah, I I think Zach might have had a little bit of a difference with his mobility and his explosiveness where maybe he could have made something happen. But on a down to down basis, I I don't think it would have mattered because I think this had a lot more to do with the offensive line getting beat and the play calling than it did with Flacco outright being bad. I'm not trying to say Flacco was amazing. I'm not trying to say that he was even good, but I would not sit here and say that, yes, this loss is solely on Joe Flacco, and he's terrible, and he's washed, and start Mike White, and that'll solve everything. If that's what you're thinking in your brain right now, please get that out of your head, because it's just not true. Exactly. Uh, you, you mentioned a lot of the things that went wrong around him, uh,
1: and I'd just like to yeah just replace Flacco with anybody and then go over the, the mistakes that happened. Would Mike White being in change the fact that we had Conklin fumble us out of uh, contention for a touchdown? Would Mike White in there uh, matter with uh, Hall, a fumble, taking us out of score at a, a, a position to score? Would Mike White in there stop uh, by Michael Carter from dropping a touchdown? No. And there's a number of other things. It, it, the list goes on. Does it stop the uh, Greg the leg from missing a field goal and missing an extra point? These were points left on the field, points that we should have had, which is what I said in the beginning. We just couldn't get out of our own way. We shot ourselves in the foot. Uh, and, I yeah, it, I would go Lafleur. I would go offensive line. Then I would go ball security uh, as the reasons why we lost. Yep. And then maybe Flacco.
0: Yeah, Flacco's in the top five, but he's no higher than four. Yeah, Uh, there's there is a lot of other things that went wrong. In particular, this is one thing I've wanted to to mention, because I haven't seen anyone say this. And I can't fathom why I haven't seen anyone say this, because it was clear as day on the TV broadcast copy. Flacco had one interception to Marcus Williams. He's throwing an in cut to Lawrence Cager, who slipped. (laughs) Cager slips. Like it, it, he's on the ground. It looks like Flacco's throwing to nobody. No, he's trying to throw to Cager, who's supposed to be cutting across the middle, and he slips and falls down. Now, with the way Marcus Williams was breaking, is it possible that it could have been a pass breakup and and he would have met Cager as soon as the ball got there and you know broken the play up? That's sure. possible. That's right. That's possibility. But I can sit there and from the the grading the quarterback angle, sit there and go, okay, Lawrence Cager's six foot five. He's running an in-cut. I'm going to try and put the ball high because it's got to go over the linebacker. It was a little bit deeper down the field of a throw, about 10, 15 yards. So I got to put a little air under it. And I also know that this guy's 6'5 and should be able to climb the ladder and pick the ball up out of the air and make a catch over the middle over defensive backs, linebackers, safeties, et cetera. That's Blacko's throw process when throwing that ball. He doesn't control cager slipping. So just like we were talking about, it would would Mike White being in change Carter dropping a wide open touchdown. Would Mike White being in change Cager slipping on an in cut? Is is that Joe Flacco's fault, too? I just I, I don't I don't buy it. And it's just it really it's unfair to me. And I feel like it's just Jets fans looking for the easy scapegoat. It
1: really is. Uh, I've seen people go as far as saying the breaking out the compass and protractor and saying it's just geometry, man. There's no way Cager would have caught it
0: either way, <laughs> because look, Marcus Williams had to jump. <laughs> like uh, And that's what? possible, <laughs> but it wouldn't have been a wide open pick and it wouldn't no. have been this terrible look at Flacco. He's throwing to nobody situation. Cager would have at least been able to maybe fight for the ball. He would have at least been in Williams' way to try and not let him get an easy pick. I mean, there's a lot of KG different things. He
1: has five inches on Williams, and guess exactly. what? He can jump too. <laughs> so it, it, this that's, a, that's just a cop-out. It's just uh, an excuse to really trash on Flacco for no reason, really, other than they just want to blame somebody and they don't really know who they should be blaming.
0: Yeah and I think that's exactly what it is. Is they don't know who to blame and so the quarterback is always the easiest one to blame. and uh, it's, it's we got to be better than that. As as fans as analysts as everything. We got to be better than that. We got to be able to look at things for what they are uh, and process things for what they are. Uh,
1: and, going oh, forward, go okay, ahead. Sorry, yeah, one no. more I just want to reiterate that we are not saying that, that Flacco played a great game or even a Not good at all. We're not saying that at all. I, I think that just needs to be stated. Just because,
0: yeah, just no, defending I just...
1: Flacco doesn't mean that we are in love with what Flacco did.
0: Yeah. Uh, to to wrap it all up in a bow in one easy sentence, Joe Flacco wasn't good. He wasn't the sole reason they lost. He was far from the sole reason they lost. Yep. I, it's as simple <laughs> as that for me. That simple. All right, Matt. Let's get to the defense. Because I think there was a lot more positives here. Yes, good news indeed. Um, before we get any further, there's one thing I want to highlight, and I wanted to make sure that we took time to do this. Credit all the credit in the world to DJ Reed. Oh my god! Yeah. To learn literally minutes before kickoff of your father passing away. To credit to him for even going out and playing. Credit to him for even being remotely focused on what was happening in that moment. So I'm not even, we'll get to his performance, which was incredible, but I want to start by focusing on DJ Reed, the person and saying, I hope the best for him. I hope the best for his family, you know, keeping, you know, I don't want to be the thoughts and prayers guy because I think that's just so easily, you know, easily said, but thinking about him and his family, wishing the best, hoping that he can get through this very difficult time and all the credit in the world to him for for how he was able to reset himself and go to whatever place that he went to in his mind to go out and play that game. He played fantastic, but credit to DJ Reed, the person, first.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, It was reminiscent of the
1: Brett Favre game uh, just days before Christmas in 2003 um, when uh, his dad died, and he turned that tragedy into triumph. Uh, And it kind of reminded me of that, uh, him going out there and probably having the game of his life in honor of his father. Uh, It's it's touching. It's sad. It's, it's, it's powerful. It's all, it's everything.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. And I know this has been well-documented at this point. And there were some people that quickly got on him for celebrating his interception when they were down by a couple of scores in the fourth quarter. And then it came out with the story of his father's passing and that he was dedicating the game to him and that play in particular. And I think people kind of backed off that a little bit. I'm going to get, you know, even more in the weeds on this. These guys work so hard that these guys are fighting for their lives, they're fighting for their livelihoods, their families, everything. You make a play, I don't care, you know, unless you're down 60 points, you know, you're, you're down a couple of scores in the fourth, fourth quarter. It's a big game and you make a play, you celebrate about it. I'm not going to get on you. You, that's that shows that you care to me. That shows that you that that it matters that you that you're still trying. That you're glad what you did, and you're you know you're trying to be the best player that you can. and You're glad that you just made a play. I, I don't think there's there's much to that. On top of the fact that Reed had even more of a very good reason to be celebrating uh, for the play that he did, his play in particular, to to focus in on that and get away from the the off field side look just specifically at what he did on the field. You couldn't have had a better debut.
1: No.
0: I mean he was targeted six times. He allowed zero catches. He had an interception and a force fumble. When targeted DJ Reed generated a passer rating on Sunday of 0.0. 0. Yeah.
1: Can't get lower than that, guys. <laughs> you literally right.
0: You he literally could not have done better. This is about as great of a performance as you could have hoped for from DJ Reed in his debut. Um I thought he played fantastic all the corners I think really played fantastic sauce Gardner on the other side I thought had a really really good game I was um, absolutely amazed that the coaches had so much trust in him to repeatedly match him up on Mark Andrews and man one-on-one and they would move him into the slot and he'd be on Andrews in the slot and carrying him down the field or wherever he wanted to go and he locked him up for a good majority of the game. So this secondary, first and foremost, you know, hats off to them because they did their thing. They really made things tough for the Ravens passing offense and didn't really open many holes. The few big plays that we had, obviously, we'll get to. We'll, we'll break those down. But they were pretty much few and far between. And for the most part, I thought the secondary did a great job.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, really, the only ones that got picked on were Hall, Joiner. And the linebackers, I guess. but uh, Whitehead, too, uh, a little bit. Whitehead, too, also. Uh, but everybody else was lights out. And that's so encouraging uh, to have that in our back pocket. Uh, because we, we, we've talked countless times about what this defense needs to be a successful defense. And what they want to do. And they need these studs at all levels. And the fact that they have the two quarterbacks that are locked down cornerbacks uh, is only going to benefit the entire defense as a whole. Um, we talked about how it's kind of back uh, starts up front with the pass rush and then goes to them. But the fact that they're this good, this quickly already kind of leads credence to the fact that this defense is not just pass rush uh, generated. It is a full frontal attack of everywhere on every level and the fact that they're that
0: they're this early uh is only encouraging it's very very encouraging and this is the one point i want to end on with the secondary because i think there's even room for more improvement and hope in the future yeah they didn't lose and i'm going to get to that because i'm sure everyone as soon as i say this is going to say bryce hall bryce hall bryce hall i'll get to that next (laughs) They didn't lose any matchups where they just got beat in coverage. Their big plays came from miscommunications. Their yeah. big plays came from, from busts. And that isn't good. I'm not trying to say coverage busts are a good thing, yeah. but coverage busts are a lot more easily cleaned up than just outright getting beat in coverage. Yeah. Just outright losing your 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 matchup, for lack of a better word. Bryce Hall, you know, for, for all you know the crap that I've said about Bryce Hall before. This is like we said before we're going to keep it real. Bryce Hall did everything he could have on the touchdown he gave up. Everything. He wasn't beat really by that much. Receiver had about a step on him. Lamar threw an absolute dime. Mm-hmm. It was it was the perfect throw and for longtime fans of this show will remember when all the way back when it first started and we were breaking down 2021 quarterbacks and I remember breaking down Zach Wilson, I remember a quote that he said himself about how he would throw back shoulders to covered receivers and complete it seemingly at will. A good ball beats good coverage every time. There you go, Lamar Jackson. Same sort of deal. Um, Bryce Hall played that uh, about as well as you could hope for. He was close. There wasn't a small window. And then the one thing with him that I was ready just to turn and say like, this is where Bryce needed to focus. He did. He fought through the hands after the completion. If you're not going to turn around and make a play on the ball yourself, and you're going to play the receiver and and hope that you can make a stop. Then once that receiver makes the catch, you want to get your arm in between and try and fight through. Devin Duvernay caught that ball with Bryce arms, Bryce Hall's arm in the middle of him. You know, Bryce Hall was trying um, to break that ball up and it was just a better catch by Duvernay. So I, I, it's, that's encouraging for me. That's improvement. Giving up a touchdown is never good, but it wasn't the absolute dusting that we saw from him in the preseason against the Falcons. This was a lot better of a rep in coverage. It was just a better play by the offense. Sometimes the offense makes a good play, too.
1: Yeah, it happens. Uh, yeah, uh,
0: it, you can't really ask Hall
1: to do anything else there other than come away with the interception. But uh, like you said, the perfect throw, the perfect catch will always trump the the perfect coverage so yeah it, it is what it is uh, the joiner uh touchdown like you said was just a miscommunication um and yeah these things can get figured out and get, hopefully they do get figured out because if they do then this secondary can be probably one of the best in the league i think
0: uh, they certainly can be I don't know if I'm going to say best in the league, but I think they can easily be top half. And I think that they can be good enough to not be worried about and be a strength of the team. You would say what, like top 15? I think they can easily be top 15. I think there's a good chance that if they continue to improve, they can get to top 10. I'm not going to sit there and say outright best in the league yet. Look out next year. Cause I think a year two sauce Gardner, another year, a DJ Reed and probably a new free safety. Hopefully, now I think <laughs> hopefully a new free safety I'll say, you know, now I think you're talking, you know, one of the better units, but, but overall it was a great performance from, from the secondary. There was a handful of, you know, a few issues, um, the deep touchdown to Rashad Bateman was in cover 4 and I know everyone's going to say how do you let people get behind you in cover 4 cover 4 is way more susceptible to deep throws than people think it is because you have you have to have really good communication with your back end those safeties they're basically in the middle of the field they're playing match coverage and they're waiting for someone to kind of enter in where they're going and if no one is quick enough in reaction to pick up that receiver that's going deep, that safety is going to have to turn and run real fast, and it's going to be a losing matchup. That's what we saw in that Bateman touchdown, as you had Joiner and Whitehead and cover four in the middle of the field, and Joyner's expecting Whitehead to pick him up. Whitehead is looking somewhere else at a curl route you know, that's closer, uh, and as Robert Sala said, the Ravens were ahead. They were worried about the run game. They got nosy, and they kept their eyes in the backfield. It was just miscommunication. That's going to be something that I'm sure they're going to pick up on film. It's going to be cleaned up in the future, and in the next time the Jets run a cover four, you're going to have better communication on the back end. That's going to be improved. Whitehead, Cor- correct me if Go I'm ahead. wrong, but also
1: I think it was uh, Lamar also did a great job of maneuvering the pocket and stepping up and kind of faking a run as well, which might have also uh,
0: and that's the, the other season. part of it exactly. Exactly. And just like later in the game, um, Whitehead gave up a touchdown to Duvernay for his second. Lamar is coming up the pocket. First off, it was a no-look throw by Lamar. Like, just so if Whitehead's trying to read eyes and zone coverage, he's already, you know, getting beat by that by Lamar pulling some Mahone stuff. And there was, like we said, pressure up the middle. Jackson was able to skirt around and dance. This was a point that we had brought up last week, or I had brought up last week, about unbalanced fronts, where the Jets are in uh, one of their overload fronts, where they had uh, Lawson on the left in a wide nine, and they had three other linemen kind of to the right of the center onward, and it left this wide open gap on the left B gap uh, right by the left guard, and Jackson knew if he got pressured, that's where I'm going to step up, that's where I'm going to have my lane, and that's exactly what happened. Pressure came from the other side. Jackson had a lane to step up through it. Whitehead's got his eyes on, on Lamar. Lamar keeps his eyes in the center of the field, and Duvernay runs behind Whitehead, and Lamar throws a no-look pass for a touchdown. Sometimes you get beat by players that like that. Sometimes you lose to, to guys who are MVPs of the league. It happens. The Jets aren't going to be playing Lamar Jackson every single week. No, they are not. Uh, but you know what? Even against
1: this Lamar Jackson this week, they did very well.
0: Yeah they really did and I think that's where we can talk about was probably the biggest strength of the defense overall on Sunday and that was the run defense who would have guessed that not us (laughs) yeah (laughs) not us we we
1: thought they were going to get destroyed on run.
0: no I was I was absolutely blown away with their run defense and how they were able to to really shut down the Ravens run game I mean the Ravens only averaged three yards a carry on the day they had 63 total rushing yards I think for the entire contest it was their lowest rushing total in like multiple years uh, I believe so this was A a fantastic performance um, from the Jets defense and the defensive line in particular, and no one more so, in my opinion, than Quinn and Williams. Quinn and Williams Williams was the unsung hero of the defense that day, where he didn't really show up too much on the stat sheet, but that's where you got to look at the film to see the type of impact that he had. There was a play early in the game on a run to Kenyon Drake, where Quinnen is literally taking on a double team and tackles Kenyon Drake with one arm despite taking on a double team and slows him down enough for the rest of the defense to rally and get in. I think it was just a two-yard gain uh, on a run play. He had another play later in the game that forced a field goal when the Ravens were in the red zone, uh, where he swats a pass down on third down, let alone the pass deflection. He absolutely crushes Tyler Lindenbaum uh, Wunderbaum, first round pick uh, from Iowa, who I know you were very high on that as oh, a yeah, center, yeah. where he just got him with a push pull and, and kind of said, All right, Rook, welcome to the NFL. And uh, this is what we're about here. And, and just threw him out of the club and was able to get inside. If Lamar doesn't throw the ball and, and give Quinnen a chance to swat it, Quinnen's getting a third down sack. So this was, uh, this was an excellent game from Quinnen Williams. Um, defensive line as a whole i think did a really good job getting pressure containing lamar he didn't really have too many times where he was able to get out the front of the pocket or get out the side and and turn and run and make a big play it happened once from what i remember there was one really bad play on a where he picked up a first down just by made like seven yeah. people miss but that's lamar jackson it's going to happen sometimes so uh, overall Quinnen played great defensive line played great this was a Run defense was very encouraging. Quan Alexander, I thought, also was playing a lot more than maybe people anticipated. But it's a good thing he's on this team because he made some really great plays in the run game, too. Yeah, he's
1: playing with his hair on fire.
0: Uh, he's got
1: an energy that I don't remember seeing as much uh, from in on the Saints. Uh and I'm on I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> hey, absolutely. We, we thought that this, this linebacker group was going to be uh, a huge problem going into the season. Uh, and also the, the run defense in general. And they all showed up uh, uh, this past Sunday and proved us all wrong and proved that they can improve. Uh, and this also just gives credence to uh, exactly what we have to be encouraged by going forward. If they can do this against the Ravens, think about what they could do against some of the other teams in the league uh, that don't have Lamar Jackson, that don't have top three uh, run games. Uh, so, you know what? Uh, if they could do that, then they could do a lot more. Uh, I know a lot of people were, like you were saying, that Quinton wasn't really on the stat sheet uh, so much, and same could be say, said for Lawson, who was going up against uh, a backup left tackle. Um, at the same time, you have to look at the tape and see that he wasn't really being asked to rush the passer uh a lot he was asked to set the edge uh i, I remember somebody posting a few clips of him just staring down jackson daring him to to break it outside for a big run uh, and then chasing him down and uh, chasing him into to the rest of his teammates uh so when you factor in the type of offense that the ravens play Uh, And what we had to do to contain that offense, uh, you got to just factor that in when you look at the stat sheet.
0: Yeah, and defending the Ravens and their their offense was the goal. Piling up stats wasn't the goal. Shutting down the Ravens' offense was. And for the most part, with what the Ravens want to do offensively, they did. And we saw it was indicated by the score through most of the first half. This was a 10 3 game at halftime. It was a three-nothing game for a large majority of, of pretty much the entire first quarter and into some of the second quarter. You know, there was a lot to be, there was a lot of concern for what this offense was going to do to the Jets defense. And the Jets defense absolutely showed up and made things a different game, kept the game close throughout most of the first half. I could not finish any talk about the defense without talking about Jermaine Johnson, though. Because he was able to get a sack (laughs) in his first NFL game. He didn't get any in the preseason, but he had one uh, against the Ravens. And it only counted as a half sack because Jacob Martin had to get in right at the end and steal the other half from him. But this was a Jermaine Johnson sack, let alone what the stats say. This was all on Jermaine. He's going against Morgan Moses. He's in standard seven technique alignment, goes to the outside, gets a good jump off the snap, and he catches Moses leaning. Moses starts leaning forward and Jermaine is able to take him on, give him a little bit of a sidestep and kind of swipe around and dip under him. And this is where I, where we talked about Jermaine for months. The, the end of this play this is where everyone, if you want to go back and watch it yourself, people, please go ahead and do. This is why I was so high on Jermaine Johnson because for as big and as strong and as fast as he is his ability to bend and his ability to be agile and turn corners is astounding and that's what happened on this play he gets around Moses he hits him with the little double swipe he goes back to the outside he's able to dip under him and then as Lamar is stepping up it's it's one thing like we said when I was this is why I was downer on Aiden Hutchinson it's one thing to get pressure it's another thing to finish Jermaine is able to keep his ankles tight, turn that corner as tight as he can get around Moses. And even though Lamar steps up, he's able to flatten down fast enough to close in behind him and bring him down for a sack. That's what great pass rushers do. They're able to eliminate corners to make the angle that you have to get to get to that around that blocker and get to the quarterback that much shorter. Their ability to turn on dimes is is really, really crucial. And I think this play just showed everything that you want to see out of Jermaine as an edge rusher. This is what he does, and he's only going to continue to do it more.
1: Yeah, uh, one of the things I always loved about J.J. when watching his tape was his length uh it shows up in the run his run defense uh disengaging from blocks but it also shows up in his pass rush uh being able to make tackles away from his body uh, away from his frame uh he was able to chase down uh lamar and use his length to really shorten the gap between him and lamar uh and really bring it home uh i love what i saw from him uh i'm only encouraged going forward uh the fact that how many snaps did he have? I don't think it was that many. it, wasn't, to, too
0: many. it wasn't too many. He played when I first just watching the game itself. That was the first time I had saw Jermaine get in the game with that sack. It wasn't his first snap. Like I thought it might've been, which kind of hurt my heart a little bit because I would have loved to have been able to say he got a sack on his first snap, but he did play, um, earlier in the game he had some good plays in the run game didn't get completely blown off the ball was able to contain uh, and hold his edge like you were saying but I this was an encouraging game from Jermaine Uh, this is this bodes well for the future I'm excited to see what he does with more opportunities and there's an interesting point from Sala today uh, because they were asked about Bryce Huff who is inactive for this game And they said that Huff was inactive. They have so many defensive linemen, they made Huff inactive because they wanted to have some more big bodies in on their lineup going against the running attack of the Ravens. With how they defended it, it seemed like it was a solid idea, and it seemed like the plan worked out for for all indications. I'm waiting to see what, what this defense looks like when we go against a team that's pass happy. We go against a team that that wants to throw more and isn't as worried about the run game. That's when I really think you're going to see the creativity and the explosiveness of this pass rush pass rush come alive. And you're going to see some absolutely frightening front four sets and combinations of guys that are just going to make life hell for offensive lines. Well, we're not going to get that next week. No, no, we are going to get that next week. And I think that's a good transition to look ahead to week two against the Cleveland Browns. This is going to be another game, just like Baltimore that first and foremost is going to be won or lost in the trenches. And, And I think that we saw the jets did a solid job defensively of winning the trenches where they didn't do it as much offensively. And I think that's why we saw them lose the game as well as some creativity from the floor, but we went over that regardless If the Jets can't control the line of scrimmage, they're not going to win. And that might stand more true for the Browns than it did against the Ravens, because the Browns don't have a Lamar Jackson that can scramble around in the pocket and make, you know, explosive plays down the field or, or make seven guys miss on on a pass play and scramble and pick up a first down. Anyway, they're rocking with Jacoby Brissett and Jacoby Brissett was by no means amazing uh, against the Panthers in week one, but he was serviceable. He was efficient. Didn't turn the ball over. And he was able to do that because this Browns offensive line put out a clinic. This Browns offensive line was impeccable against the Carolina Panthers. They only gave up one stack combined as a team, uh, as an, as a unit. It was, I think Matt, you'd said it was about 15 pressures for the whole game combined from the entire starting five. And when we were before we were recording, you had mentioned that and they did so, which I'd, learned today before recording this, they did so without their starting right tackle. They did so with a third string right tackle. Jack Conklin, who's their normal starter, has been out since last year uh with a knee injury. They're easing him back. He was practicing throughout the week, but they wanted to take things safe and be extra careful. So he was inactive. It's possible that he might be inactive again this next week. His backup uh, Chris Hubbard was also dealing with an injury that kept him inactive. And so they had their third string right tackle, James Hudson play and Hudson didn't skip a beat. The rest of the offensive line didn't skip a beat. Their pass protection was impeccable. And then the real problem was that they absolutely gashed the Panthers on the ground. Nick Chubb had 142 yards, I believe at five point something yards a carry Kareem hunt had a 20 something yard touchdown run. This was a, a, a bullying of the Panthers defense. There's no other way to say it. The Jets defense, we just saw what they did against the Ravens and it bodes well for the future. It gives us a lot more encouragement than I would have had, you know, before this game with how the Jets just did against Baltimore, but they got to bring their lunch pails again because this is going to be another tough ask going against this Browns offensive line.
1: Yeah, I could see them also sitting uh, huff again and using their their big guys more to really kind of outmatch the, the strength Uh, of the Browns offensive line. Uh, Even if uh, they're starting, even if Conklin's not, uh, uh, is back, they're going to want their best, their strongest guys going up against these guys uh, because the smaller guys like Huff or Martin, they're probably just going to get pushed around by this offensive line. Um, Yeah. This uh, front seven, they're going to need to bring their A game. If they're going to want to stop the dynamic duo of Hunt and, so it's it's not going to be easy at all. Uh, and Brissette himself is not, he's not Lamar Jackson, but he can definitely move with the ball. So uh,
0: I wonder if they're going to come in with a similar game plan. I think it'll be similar, but I won't think it's going to be exactly the same. And the main reason for that is that the Browns really don't do any of the option run game stuff that the Ravens do, where the Ravens will run a lot of pistol. They'll run a lot of, read option type plays and counters off of it and have that sort of quarterback fake option where the defense really has to focus and key in on Lamar as another, you know, ball carrier, just like they would counting any other of their skill positions. You got to count Lamar in that group as well. I don't think the Browns, the Browns don't, it's not that I don't think they just don't, the Browns don't work that way and they're not going to have Brissett as can he be mobile and can he move around and make some plays maybe on scrambles in the pass game? Sure. But he's not going to be a running threat. He's not going to be anyone they're designing touches for to let him keep the ball and run with it like the Ravens would do with Lamar. The Jets are going to know that Nick Chubb is getting the ball more than likely. And if it's not Nick Chubb, then it's going to be Kareem Hunt in the run game. It's all about shutting down this offense. And the good thing here is that Kevin Stefanski, the Browns head coach, basically runs the Jets offense. He's from a Gary Kubiak disciple and Gary Kubiak, as we've said before, is part of that Shanahan coaching tree that all started up with Mike Shanahan in Denver in the 90s. And Kevin Stefanski was in Minnesota under Kubiak when Kubiak was the offensive coordinator there, learned from him, took over for Kubiak, eventually became the Vikings full-time offensive coordinator. And now he's the head coach of the Browns. It's basically the same offense. It's wide zone with play action on top of it, mix in your bootlegs and, and get your ground game going from there. So the Jets should, be, should know how to defend this. They go against it every day in practice. They've, Robert Sala should know how to defend this scheme because it's the scheme his own offense runs. It's the scheme he was with, practicing against for years and years in San Francisco. So from a schematic standpoint, you would hope that the Jets have a bit of an advantage because they know what's coming. This isn't going to be a foreign scheme to them. And they're also going to know the checks and the little nuances to it and how the blocks are are supposed to be picked up more so than just watching tape of a team and knowing what they do. The Jets are going to know the ins and outs of this offense and hopefully that'll do some things to really help them out. I think it'll lead to them being able to take a couple of chances, shoot a couple of gaps and be a little risky with their linebackers. I think it'll pay off.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, The fact that, it is such a similar offense, uh, can only pay dividends uh, in their ability to be prepared for this game. Uh, so I, I'm not expecting a, uh, a fall back to earth moment for this de- the defensive front. Uh, I think they're going to do just fine. Um, and then you also have to just look at what they do uh, in, in the air. Who are they throwing to? They got Donovan Peoples-Jones, they have Amari Cooper, uh, and then they'll use Hunt and their tight end, Harrison Bryant. Uh, and, Joko well. uh, and Joko as well. And Joko as well. So they, they've they got guys, but when you, th- when you see what our guys in the secondary did last week, I think they are more than up to the task of eliminating Cooper and Peoples-Jones with Sauce and Reed. Uh, and then it's pretty much just going to be Hunt and the tight ends that you really need to uh, focus in on. Uh, I think uh, guys like Quan are really going to have to step up and, and kind of take away uh, the leaks from Hunt or uh, Bryant and Njoku in the middle uh, and Whitehead as well. Uh, I, I I see them stepping up to the plate. They, they've shown nothing but being prepared and ready for the type of battle that the Browns are going to really take to them this week.
0: It's it's going to be interesting to see cuz you brought up Whitehead and as of today it doesn't apparently he's dealing with a foot injury and it's not it's likely that he isn't going to play. R- they brought up Will Parks from the practice squad and brought him onto the active roster today as kind of insurance. So if Whitehead can't play, it's likely that Parks would then step into that role and be able to fill that spot. Luckily, we seem pretty confident in Will Parks. We've liked what we've seen from him going back to last season as well as the preseason this year. So if that is the case and Parks ends up playing, hopefully he'll be able to fill in well. But you're right. The passing game and where it's going to be centered is really going to be focused on the tight ends and these running backs. Because I think our secondary on the outside, at least the corners, can do enough to, to match up with these receivers. I also think it's a really, really good matchup for the Jets' corners if they kind of get into the right alignment because Sauce Gardner is going to lock down Donovan Peoples-Jones. He's got the size for it. He's not going to be you know, out-bullied or, or out-manned by any stretch. He's more than fluid and agile and quick enough, and, and he's got the attitude as well where he's not just going to be out physical or, or boxed out or anything like that. So I think that's a good matchup. Amari Cooper is a very good route runner is big herb but doesn't necessarily play to that size can go up and get the ball but he's definitely more of a finesse receiver and more of a i'm just going to get open i'm not just going to moss you dj reed i think is the perfect guy for that on the other side where he can kind of match up with that coverage and he's very shifty and quick in his own right and, and plenty aggressive too if that ends up being the case and you get from what I've seen with DJ Reed being the right corner and Sauce being the left corner, if you get those matchups and you get DPJ on Sauce and Cooper on Reed, I think you're going to be okay. When things flip, I think it might be a little questionable. It'll be a big test for uh, Sauce Gardner going against Amari Cooper and seeing how he handles that. But given how he played against Mark Andrews, and I know those are two very different guys, but Andrews is no slouch of a route runner either you know, there's, there's some room for encouragement and this is why you took the guy fourth overall so that he can go out against the other team's best receiver. And you have confidence that he's going to be able to hold the zone and, and handle things in the back end. So I'm hopeful for that aspect. I'm curious to see what happens with Whitehead if parks ends, uh, ends up stepping up, but the last, I almost forgot this and I'm really upset at myself for almost forgetting this. The last thing I'm worried about for the passing offense, Matt, quite honestly, is screen passes because I think you could see a handful of screens uh, to these Browns running backs, knowing the jets defensive line is going to be aggressive, knowing that they're probably going to be trying to shoot some, shoot some gaps uh, and be aware of this offense. I think you really got to be on your keys and on your P's and Q's to make sure you don't get hit with any screens. Cause I can just, the the Nick Chubb 60 yard screen touchdown is already happening in my brain. And I'm hoping that I, we can get ahead of it early.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That That's a, a worry that I've, that that has hot me since last year when we couldn't stop a screen. Uh, so it would be nice to see. Uh, I, I don't remember if the Ravens threw many screens last week. I think they did they, they did a
0: few. They had uh, one I remember but, that went for a solid gain. Solid gain. I don't remember many outside of that. So we we really haven't been tested in that
1: arena so far. Um. So yeah, that worries me. Uh. At the same time, I want us. <laughs> to run a lot of screens uh, and really fight the aggressiveness of this Browns defense.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I think that's a good, a good way to get into the offense, what the offense can do. They can't do what they did last week. No, for just like we said earlier, I'm going to reiterate that they absolutely cannot go out with the same game plan. The Browns front is too good. Uh, Miles Garrett is an alien. Jadeveon Clowney is is still plenty good in his own right. JOK and Anthony Walker in the middle at linebacker, you know, do a very, very solid job. Taven Bryan, I thought the former Jags first round pick is uh, one of their defensive tackles. I thought he actually had a really nice game against the Panthers. Uh, It's interesting to see how he's kind of revived his career. They drafted uh, they had Perry and Winfrey as an undrafted free agent who I really, really liked. Um, coming out of the draft this past year as kind of a three-tech penetrator who was playing at a position at Oklahoma. And now he's on their roster as well. There's This is a tough front. The offensive line is, is going to have to improve. And if the Jets just think they're going to go up to Cleveland and, and try and do the same thing they just did against the Ravens, it's not going to work. No, it's not. Uh, if, if our
1: offensive line is uh, letting Garrett have the kind of game that uh, he had against Carolina. It's going to be a very long day for Flacco. Um, although you know what, all that pressure in the first half did force Flacco to change his mentality and his game against the Ravens in the second half, uh, and maybe made him a more effective passer. Uh, he definitely sped up his, uh, his, his, uh, progressions a good amount. Uh, So maybe he's a little bit more prepared for this aggressiveness. And if the offensive line uh, doesn't hold up uh, and if LaFleur decides to really come back with the the same offensive uh, profile that he wants to put out there uh, against the Browns, then maybe he's a little bit more prepared for what could be coming
0: at him. You would have to hope so. You would have to hope that Flacco, with all his time in the league and and the experience that he has, can be self-aware enough to go, okay our offensive line really struggled i got to try and get the ball out quicker but like we said if the routes are all downfield developing routes you know then there might not be much he can do about that and as we've talked about before matt we don't think these quarterbacks can audible we don't okay. think these quarterbacks can can adjust the play at the line to where if they see a look that they like or they're they're worried that a play might take too long to develop they don't have the freedom to make a, a change and go against what their coach said. There's a handful of instances where Michael floor will call two plays and the quarterback will have the option at the line to can, as it's called. You'll, know, if you've ever heard the quarterback at the line, yell can, 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 that's what they're doing. They're changing to the other play that was called, but that's an option of two plays and Michael floor called both of them. It's yeah, not it's you the know, illusion a, of control, <laughs> right? Exactly. It's the illusion of control. It's not outright, you know, audibling or adjusting, our quarterbacks are never going to be Peyton Manning going out there calling their own plays. So will I hope that Flacco, you know, learn from this game and maybe tries to get to the check down a little bit quicker, a little sooner in games. Yeah. But I also hope that Michael floor learned from this game and learned that he's got to start opening things up underneath and he's got to start getting these guys, the ball in space with some quicker throws because it's just not going to have the time for all these deep routes to develop otherwise. And I think that's where I want to focus next because quite honestly, I think this is the biggest challenge the jets have on offense this week. How do you stop miles Garrett?
1: uh yeah yeah that's a very good question and
0: one that i don't think has ever been answered by any team not just us no Uh, if we had those answers we wouldn't be doing this we would be we would be somewhere making a heck of a lot more money in a heck of a lot more (laughs) important position if we could come out here and say with a foolproof game plan of how to stop miles garrett
1: yeah i mean we can throw out what we think they should do uh they could either uh they could throw some chip blocks at them. They could double team them, uh, but then you got to deal with everybody else on that defensive line. It's still a very good defensive line. Besides Garrett, uh, you still have Clowney on the, as the other bookend. So it's you. You want to pay attention to him, but you don't want to pay so much attention to him that you're really debilitating the rest of the line against everybody else. Um, it, it's it's not an easy. Uh, solution, uh, a problem to find a solution for. It's going to be what it's going to be. Uh, you have to hope that Fant looks a lot more like 2021 Fant uh, and really shows up and kind of locks him down or does his best to lock him down. Like we were saying with uh, Lamar Jackson, we kind of uh, limited what he could do on the ground, but we're, there's no way we could stop him, and we didn't. Completely stop him. Uh, the same could be s- said for Garrett. He's that good that no matter how good you you can uh, throw a game plan at him, uh, if it could work for ninety percent of the game, uh, that extra ten that ten percent that's left over is going to be him uh, causing havoc. It, it's it's just the way it's
0: going to be. Yeah, Miles Garrett is the highest grade I've ever given a defensive end uh, prospect coming out of college ever. He is my gold standard for, for pass rushing prospects. There's no one. And, and, you know, chase young, Nick Bosa, whoever else, no one's come close to miles Garrett for me. Miles Garrett is the second highest grade I've ever given a defender behind Aaron Donald, coming out of pit. Those are, this is the type of caliber of player we're talking about. Miles Garrett's probably going in the hall of fame before his career. By the end of his career, he's probably going to be a sure surefire first ballot hall of famer. He's an alien. You don't just stop him. You don't just outright shut him down. You have to limit him as much as you can. So I'm going to throw something out because it's the only logical answer I have with my football knowledge of how do you slow down Miles Garrett. And the one thing that I know is that Garrett wants to win to the edge, to the outside, first and foremost, because he's so fast, because he's so agile. Uh, his ability to be flexible and the bend and how low he can get and turn corners so tightly at six, 275 pounds it is, is unreal. It, you know, it, it literally blows, blows your mind. It doesn't make any physical or, or biological sense for miles Garrett to be able to do the things that he does. And the one thing that he had in the Panthers game, where he had two sacks against uh, Iki Iquano in his first start which what a first start for for Icky Iquano going against a guy like that. The one thing that the Browns kept doing is they kept putting Miles Garrett in a wide nine, giving him that wide edge, having him already so far outside, because he can flatten that corner so fast. He doesn't need to get, you know, all he needs is that bit of a head start, and he's going to be able to get around the tackle. There's two things that can be done, in my opinion, to limit that. And they both start with play calling and really it's LaFleur more so than it is the players or anything else. First and foremost, this is one thing that the Panthers did a lot to their own detriment. uh, And our co-host Vitor on Twitter brought this up as well uh, on a clip made me think about this. Miles Garrett would be in the wide nine and the Panthers would have a tight end to Iquanu's side on Garrett's side, but that tight end wouldn't be chipping. That tight end would be running around. And if you're going to do that, then you're basically just giving Miles Garrett a head start because now there's this gap between Aquanu and Garrett, where the tight end was. And Aquanu is going to have to, as Vitor put it, Usain bolt out of his kick slide to get to the corner to match Garrett's speed and basically completely and totally sell out, fire out of his stance as fast as he can, and hope he can beat Garrett to the edge before he's going to flatten the corner and get the sack. When you have that tight end in between, it makes it that much harder if they're not going to chip. That said, I don't think just chipping Miles Garrett is the answer either. I I don't think it's as easy as, oh, we'll just give him a bit of a help and and give him a chip and slow him down. And that's going to be, you know, the end all be all. I don't think that's what you do. I think you stop Miles Garrett by putting a tight end or let me rephrase that. You slow down Miles Garrett by putting a tight end on the other side. If it's going to be the offense is right. And that's what it'll be. And you double team it. You have Fant as your left tackle. You tell him fire, get to the outside, use your athleticism, sell out for that outside move. And we're going to have Lakin watching the inside lane. You can't just completely, if you're in single, uh, if you're single blocking as a tackle, you can't always just completely and totally sell out to the outside. You're going to leave the inside lane wide open for inside counters. And that's not going to do you any good either. But if you have Lake in there and his whole job is watch the inside gap. And if Garrett tries to go inside, then that's when you smack him on the side of the face when he's not looking. I think you can do something to slow him down. That'll also give Fant the freedom to get out of his stance faster, to sell out to that outside move, and hopefully get to his spot before Garrett can beat him to it. Again, easier said than done. And with how those two in particular played last week, you're putting a lot of faith into probably the two worst members of your offensive line right now. So, uh, this is going to be quite honestly, I think this is where the game, uh, if I'm looking at keys to the game and where the game is won and lost. It's getting your ball, getting the ball to the playmakers in space offensively, getting the ball out faster so that Garrett doesn't have as much time to go around that corner, and it's doing what you can to double him and prevent him from going around that corner. If those two things can't be done, the Jets' offense has no shot.
1: Yeah, it's
0: it's that simple. Uh, yeah, I, I, I not much can. I can really add to
1: that. It's, it's what we have to do. Uh, if not, then it's going to be a long day. And I'm kind of glad that Zach is maybe missing this game uh, because it could be an ugly one. If uh, we don't do that,
0: it could be very ugly. Uh, if this offensive line has a repeat performance, like they did last week, this is going to be a rough game for Joe Flacco. That's all I'm going to say <laughs> is, is God bless Flacco because he's going to be sore next Monday. Uh, mm-hmm. if this offensive line doesn't hold up. Matt, let's get into score predictions before we go ahead and get out of here. I let things off last week, so I'm going to let you take the reins to start this time.
1: All right. Um, I think our uh, front seven uh, is going to do uh, another great job at stopping the run and really forcing Brissett to take to the air uh, and beat our star, our star cornerbacks. Uh, and I think the secondary is up to the task and, and really – uh, taking away what they want to do. Um, and that will kind of lead to a defensive battle uh, because I think that it will be hard. It will be tough uh, sledding for this Jets offense to really uh, put a lot on the board against this Browns defense, against that pass rush. Uh, but I think they'll do enough. I think that they make the improvements that they need to Im- make improvements on. Uh, I think they'll take better care of the ball uh, I, I think that the, the playmakers that really uh, let everybody down uh, and left, left points on the, on the board are going to come back and have great games from the kicker all the way down to Hall. It's going to be a group effort, and I think we pull, pull, it, pull it out a little bit
0: at the end. I think it's
1: going to be 2017 Jets.
0: I'm really surprised, Matt. We're both predicting wins. Uh, how about that? Which based off what we just broke down, you wouldn't expect that that's where we would both go. But look at that. We're both predicting wins. I'm right there with you. I think we're going to see some improvement. I think this Baltimore game, uh, and its I said this on Believe in Jets with Lamont Jordan before the game last week. I think exactly what happened in that Baltimore game is that they put up a fight they proved that they can hang they proved that that they were only a handful of plays away from that game being very different i think sala talked about you know they limit the the three or so explosives on defense you recover the fumble that dj reed forces you know there's a turnover for the jets defense that they weren't able to get you have better ball security like you mentioned and you don't fumble twice on offense that you lose Hopefully you don't slip on in cuts and that leads to interceptions. There's some miscues that can be cleaned up. And a lot of the Ravens scores came after they were put in really good field position, either by that interception or the, the 15 yard punt by Braden man. That was a complete shank, which apparently he had a back injury and that's why they signed a punter to their practice squad and they're monitoring his injury. And they said that affected his performance. I don't know if that's just covering your butt quite honestly, and how much that affected, but that's what the Jets are saying off the injury report. I think you're going to see some improvement overall. And most importantly, and this is where I'm predicting a win. I think the Jets offense and Mike LaFleur is going to get the hint that they can't just come out and be stubborn, that they can't just come out and, and try and out-bully people, not with how the offensive line played. And LaFleur is going to have to get creative, and he's going to have to use all of this speed that he has on offense to his advantage. I think you're going to see the Jets really start to open things up early, run more quick game, run some more receiver screens, give these guys the opportunity to get the ball and run with it. And I think the Jets are going to get out to an early lead. And I think if the Jets can get out to an early lead, you're going to see how this team is built to play because the Browns aren't going to want to just run the ball down everyone's throat. If it's a close game, the Panthers game was very close throughout the Browns were leading through most of it. And they were able to kind of just keep their foot on the gas with the run game. Panthers would catch back up. They'd be able to come from behind and, you know, didn't have to completely change their game plan. I think if the jets can get out to an early lead, which I think if they get on offense early, that's when you're going to see Lafleur kind of pull out things that the defense isn't expecting. They get out to an early lead the offense for the Browns isn't going to be able to just turn around and hand the ball to Chubb 30 times a game. And you're going to hope that Jacoby Brissett is going to be able to win against this secondary. I think that's a favorable matchup for the jets. And then I think defensively you can get out to that lead and hopefully you can then turn to your ground game a little more and try and ice the game away. And that's when we'll see Michael Carter, you know, make 17 people miss in the backfield and you give Brees lane, Brees hall any bit of a lane and he's going to cut through it and make a big play. I think it's going to be close in the end. Like you said, I do think it's going to be low scoring. I'm going to go 17, 10 jets. Okay. Yeah. I'm all for,
1: uh, yeah, the, the, the fact that I think both defenses are going to be really firing on all cylinders, uh, is really going to be a testament to how low of the score, uh, we're anticipating. Um, yeah, uh, I'm with
0: it. But like I said, Wins, wins from both of us. We'll see if we're both right. We'll see if we're both wrong. I will say if the Jets get down early, they're screwed. But that's usually been most of the case with the Jets for Mm -hmm. for a long time, is that if they get down early, they're screwed. But we saw from last week in the defense that and we saw the same thing at the start of the year last year, that at the start of the year, the defense seems to have things in check. And I think if the offense, now we have the horses in the stable to kind of back things up earlier. And I think this wasn't an option like this past week wasn't uh, an example of not having the talent. It was using the talent in the wrong way. I think they used the talent the right way this week. I think the Jets pull it out. Yep. Well, All right, Jeff. Matt, that does it for us. Let's go ahead and wrap things up. You know the drill. All right. You can find me on Twitter at Zazzy And you can find me at Andrew Golden underscore 17. You can also follow the show at OKD podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back next week to review the Browns game. Look ahead to week three against the Cincinnati Bengals. Hopefully we will both be talking about a Jets win and hopefully we will both be right for the first time this year. Thank you again so much for listening and we'll be back real soon. Bye bye.